We're going to be finishing up the little series we've been doing over the last, uh, this is the third week, on the prodigal son. And uh, we're going to uh, do the part three today that when the prodigal son came home, the father ran towards him. But he didn't just run towards him, he embraced him, covered in pig dirt and filth and mud and, and stink. The father embraced him with open arms. And he didn't just embrace him, he covered him with his robe. What a wonderful picture of God covering us with his robe of righteousness. When we turn home, when we repent, when the first sign of us coming back to God, he runs towards us and he embraces us and he welcomes us home. And that would have been such a beautiful place to leave the story, wouldn't it? And when I've heard many people preach about it and I've heard the story told, that is often where it's left. This lovely, happy picture of a father and son and a party and, and the fatted calf being killed and music and dancing and, 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 and the lights go dim and it's this perfect picture. My wife would have loved that ending. She loves just, you know, endings to, to, to dramas and movies where everything comes together and it's really happy and everybody lives happily ever after. We were watching something last week, season two, of a program called uh, Safe House, and the ending was horrendous. It just, it left everything up in the air, and for about three days, she was disturbed. She kept saying, Craig, there's got to be another episode. I'm like, I've checked. There's only four. But like Line of Duty, anybody really happy with the ending of Line of Duty? Not at all. We like endings that, 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 that are satisfying, that, that, that pull everything together. And this would have been the perfect place. To, I, think even, I think even the Pharisees would have been a little bit moved. They wouldn't have admitted it. But Jesus' story would have moved the Pharisees a little bit. So why not just leave it here? Because he's only dealt with one group of people. You see, this story was told because there were two groups of people. There were the sinners and the tax collectors who were coming to hear Jesus. And then there were Pharisees and religious leaders who were criticizing Jesus. And Jesus has dealt with one group, but he hasn't dealt with the other yet. And so he begins to do that. And so I think Jesus stopped. Once he said the Father had welcomed him home, there was a party. I think Jesus paused. And everybody thought... He's done. And I think there was this pregnant pause and then Jesus said, meanwhile, meanwhile. While all this other stuff was happening, there was something else happening. Verse 25, meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Meanwhile, remember the start of the parable? The father had two sons. We've heard all about one son who ran off and did all this stuff. We haven't heard about the other one yet. We almost forgot about him. And now Jesus introduces him to the story. And we're told he's out in the field. He's been working all day. They're wealthy. They've got servants. They've got land. He's probably been overseeing the work in the fields. He's been making sure everybody then. At the end of the day, he's sweaty. He's tired. He comes home. He starts coming back to the house. And he does this every night at the same time, comes home for dinner. But as he draws close, he hears a sound. He hears music. He hears dancing. He sees a celebration. Something is different. And he calls over one of the servants. Look at verse 26, 27. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. He calls over one of the servants. He said, hey, Miguel, what's the crack? Hey, what's going on? 
And, 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 and Senor, says Miguel, because he, he's Mexican. Senor, don't you know? He's, he's Mexican, but with a bit of West Belfast. Uh, Senor, don't you know your brother has come home? And uh, he says, my brother? No, he, he said, my brother's come home? He said, yeah. And Miguel says, you want a party popper? We are having a party? And uh, like I say, he's, he's kind of... Mexican West Belfast with a little bit of Craig Alvin thrown in there. And his brother is absolutely furious. He is furious. And if I had to give this message a title today, it would be this diagnosis of a hardened heart. Because that's what we're going to see. That this brother didn't leave the father's house, but he totally missed the father's heart. On the outside, he looked good. He didn't run away. He didn't live this wild life. But he totally missed the point because of the state of his heart. And here's my, here's my thesis. Here's my point before we really get into this. You can be just as far from God living a good moral life as you are if you're out there living a wild sinful life. Or let me put it another way. You can be just as far from God in church as you are in a brothel. Sometimes the greatest spiritual danger isn't that you'll go out there and you'll do drugs and you'll get drunk and you'll live this wild life and be promiscuous. Sometimes the greatest danger to our spiritual life is that you will be good and upright and moral and you will think that makes you right with God. Hell is going to be full of good people. Hell is going to be full of moral, upright, church-going, good-living people. And in Northern Ireland, we need to hear that. Because we are still a religious country. We are still a country where people think if they put on their Sunday best and show up at church once a week, that will get them into heaven. We're a country of older brothers. We're a place where there's been so much religion over the years, but so little grace and gospel. And here's the thing that I have noticed. Sometimes younger brothers, when we get them into church, become older brothers. We have these guys who live wild lives. Maybe they've been out doing all sorts. Maybe they've been in the paramilitaries, whatever. And we get them into church and they're born again and it's wonderful. But you meet them three years later and they've become really critical and really judgmental and really like narrow. And you kind of preferred them the way they were before a little bit, but you wouldn't say it out loud. Because there's something about a religious culture. Sometimes it can turn people into the worst sort of Christian. Anyway, let's look at the text. Diagnosis of a hardened heart. And as we go through this, I want us to examine our heart, honestly. You know, when you go to the doctor and he says, tell me where it hurts. And he prods around and you go, ah. Maybe there'll be that, ah, that ouch moment for you today. Maybe that's a sign God just wants to, to challenge your heart in that area. Look at the next verse. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. And my first point is this. A hardened heart is an angry heart. I've been a Christian for 31 years this year and I've met a lot of angry Christians. Have you met a few of them? They're so much fun to be around, aren't they? What are they angry about? They're pretty much angry about anything. Angry that you don't believe the same as they believe, that you don't go to the church that they go to, that you don't dress like they dress, that you don't use the King James Version like they use the King James Version. Angry that you disagree with them on something, angry at all the sin around them in the world, angry that, that, that you don't live exactly how you think, they think you should live. There's a lot of repressed frustration and anger out there. I have met so many of them. There's this joylessness about them. 
You see, Jesus told these three stories and there was joy in them. There was joy in heaven. There's more joy in heaven over a sinner who repents, he said. So heaven is full of joy. And yet so many Christians' lives, if you were to say what characterizes them, the first thing you wouldn't think of is they're really joyful. That's why I hope we try to laugh a bit. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We take God seriously. Because joy is at the heart of the Christian life. And when people come in here, I want them to experience an atmosphere of joy. An atmosphere where there's just normal people who laugh at ordinary things. That we're not this weird, super spiritual bunch of people that are up here somewhere who can only talk about super spiritual things. But we laugh at ourselves. We laugh at ordinary things. The older brother's angry. Why? We'll find out in a second. But look what happens first. So his father went out and pleaded with him. His father went out. The younger son had dishonored his father by leaving. And this older son is now dishonoring his father by not going in. Remember, there's people at the house here. There's people at the party. Everybody would have been saying, where's your older son? And he would have said, he's not coming in. He's refusing to come in. Which would have basically told everyone, my son dishonors me and my son disagrees with me. And yet look at what the father does. He goes out to him. He goes out to him. As well as pursuing the rebellious and the sinful, Jesus pursues the religious and the self-righteous. What grace. What love. Look what happens next. What does the older brother say? But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But but this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. There's so much in these two verses. I want to break them down a little bit. The next point is this. A hardened heart thinks like a slave, not like a son. A hardened heart thinks like a slave, not like a son. Look at what he says. All these years I've been slaving for you. This is his dad. And he sees himself as a slave. See, this boy is hardworking. And hard work is good. I place a a high value on hard work. It's great to have people in church who work hard. It's just good to work hard. It's good to serve. It's good to give. It's good to, to do all those things. But when you do them from a place of drudgery, when you do them from a place of slavery, when you do them from a place of obligation, there's something really wrong with it. I was ordained... 15 years ago this Thursday passed. Look at that fresh face. 20, 25th of June 2006. Eh? It's like a before and after, isn't it? It's like a, don't go into the ministry, this is what happens. I was going to do a side by side, but it was too, take that down please. Eh? And you know, I went into ministry, as most people do, full of zeal, full of passion, full of enthusiasm. With such a desire to serve God's people, reach the lost, preach the word. And that's still my desire. But can I say to you that what can happen and what has happened at times is this. That I begin to feel more like God's employee than his son and his child. That all the things that I used to do out of joy, all the things I used to do out of passion for Christ, just become another thing on the to-do list. They become drudgery. They become just work. And the danger is in a job like mine is that you do it just for the paycheck. 
I can't tell you the number of ministers I've met who hate what they do. Even over the last few months, I've spoken to, I would love to say it's just one, a handful of ministers who have said to me, Craig, we are trying to put off going back into in-person services as long as possible. The thought of going back into church is just too much for us. See, here's what happens. We go in and we, we go in with passion, we go in with zeal, but then we get caught up in the system. <laughs> there's a system, there's a church system, there's a, you know, and there's people who want to go up the ladder, up the career ladder. Obviously, I'm not one of them. You've probably gathered at this stage. I don't think I'll be bishop anytime soon. Um, but there's this, and, and you start getting molded, and it starts becoming drudgery, it becomes work, it becomes a paycheck, it becomes, and, 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 and it's, it's just work. And then you have 50, and, and I know many ministers who have 50, and they hate this. They've been doing it for 15, 20 years and they hate this job. But what else do they do? When you look through the job finder in the Belfast Telegraph on a Friday, I don't see a lot of companies looking for ex-ministers. This theological degree doesn't get you a lot. And so they go, well, I'll just put my head down for the next 16 years until I get my retirement. And so I have to examine my heart sometimes and I have to go, you know what? Is this just for a paycheck? Can I say to you, it's not. Somebody once said that I get paid for being good, the rest of you are good for nothing. Um, But there is a sense of that. I get paid for being good. I get paid for standing up here. I get paid for serving God. The rest of you are good for nothing. You you, you just do it from the goodness of your heart. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, Most of you. But it's not only in ministry. It's not only in paid ministry. It could be in volunteering. It could be in your marriage. That rather than feeling like a spouse, you feel like a slave or a servant. It could be in any area of life. Once this becomes drudgery, once this becomes just going through the motions, once this just becomes slavery and work, we need to examine our hearts and go, why am I doing this? You know, I, I want us to reach the lost. I want more people to serve. I want us to keep giving generously. But I want us to do it from a heart of overflow of love for God, not because of obligation. Look at what the boy says next. He answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. I've never disobeyed your orders. In other words, what he's saying is this, I've kept the rules. My next point is this, a hard heart replaces relationship with rule keeping. A hard heart replaces relationship with God with keeping the rules. Notice the boy never addresses him as father. The younger brother, when he came home, the first word he used was father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. The older brother, when he comes back, his first word is look. All these years I've been slaving for you. Look. He doesn't, there's some disconnect in this relationship. It's transactional. It's quid pro quo. I do this, you do that in return. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. His way of relating to the father is by keeping the rules. He thinks that makes him good. He thinks that makes him worthy. He's proud of his reputation. He's the good son, not like that other scumbag of a son, not like that other brother of his. He's the moral one. He never does anything wrong. You know, there's something about us humans. We love rules, don't we? We hate them, but we love them. Like as kids, we rebel against rules. And even as we get older, we've that little, but then after a while, we get quite, we kind of like rules. Like I've noticed that over the last 18 months, we've had a lot of rules, haven't we? Wash your hands, which is a good rule, by the way, whether whether there's a pandemic or not. 
washing your hands is just good basic hygiene. Okay, we'll wash your hands. Keep six feet apart. Okay, okay. Don't go here. Okay, okay. Follow the lines around the supermarket. Okay, okay. Don't go more than three miles from your house. Okay. Don't go and visit your family in hospital. Okay. Don't go and visit your family in a nursery. Okay. Don't hug your family. Okay. Okay. Uh, don't go on holidays. Okay. Okay. And we've got and, and things that we found abnormal at the start. You know what I have found? There's a certain group of people who love the rules. Have you seen them? That if accidentally you go the wrong way around the supermarket, they'll let you know about it. I do it for Bob. I know it's hard to believe those arrows. I'm not following those arrows. But it's like, have you ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome? It's people who get kidnapped who like don't want to leave the kidnappers. We've got a little bit of lockdown Stockholm Syndrome right now. We've got some people if they had 45 masks on and had all four COVID injections, they still wouldn't want to because they just, they want the, they, they like the lockdown gave them safety, the lockdown gave them security. Those rules are meant to bring freedom originally, but then they end up entrapping us in this shrunk and shriveled, miserable life. And God never wanted us to relate to him on rules. Even when he gave us the Ten Commandments, they were always about relationship. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Why? Because it damages relationship. Love me first because I want a relationship with you. The rules are not there to keep us in line. The rules are there to direct us towards a relationship with God. And do you know how you keep people in, keeping the rules? Again, we've seen that. Fear. Fear is the best way of getting compliance, isn't it? Haven't we seen that? Let's be honest. If you want people to do what you want them to do and keep the rules, push fear. People who are afraid will do almost anything. And religion, sadly, toxic religion does that. It makes people afraid of God. It makes people afraid of coming near to God. It makes people afraid that that there's a God who is just waiting to pour out wrath and judgment and maybe if they just live a good life, they'll not go to hell. That is not the gospel, that is not Christianity, and that is not what we are about. That was the mentality of the elder son. I've kept the rules. I've passed the exam. I've performed well. I might have the father's approval. And he thought that should get him certain things in return. Because look at what he says. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat. So I could celebrate with my friends. My next point is this. A hardened heart tries to earn favor with God. He says, I've done all this stuff for you and what have you given me? You're killing the fattened calf for that brother of mine. You never even gave me a young goat, which I think is funny. Don't know why he wanted a young goat. But, But he says, I've done all this and you... You owe me. This isn't, this isn't fair. I have earned something. I'm entitled to better than this. That's religion. That's the basis of most religions in the world. If you keep the rules, you will earn favor with God. If you keep the rules, you will make it to heaven. If you keep the law, you will earn this level of salvation. Religion says do, 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 do. Christianity and the gospel says done. It says done. 
It isn't what you do, it is what Christ has done. The gospel teaches that you can never do enough. You can never earn salvation. You can never make yourself right with God. You cannot work your way up to God, but you know what happened 2,000 years ago? God came down in the person of Jesus and lived a perfect life and died on the cross and rose again. And through him, through faith and trust in him and his blood, you can be saved. It is not do, it is not what you've done. It is what Christ has done. It's all Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's always Jesus. It's all by grace. It's all through faith in Christ alone and his blood. There is nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven except put your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Am I saying you're going to live however you want, just go wild? No. It's good to obey God's word. If you're a Christian, that should be your desire. But you don't do it to earn favor with God. You do it as a response to the favor of God. It's like, imagine two little boys are playing and one says, will you go into the sweet shop and steal some sweets for me? And the other one says, no, I'm not going to do that. And the first one says, why not? Are you afraid your daddy won't love you if you do it? And the second one says, actually, you know what it is? It's because I know how much my daddy loves me that I'm not going to do it. We don't obey God to earn his love. We obey God because of his love. We love because he first loved us. If you want to, 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 be, to be impassioned to love God, you need to understand his love for you first. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no punishment for you. I had a lady a while ago came to me and said, you know, Craig, I'm really worried about, because some of the things I've done in my past, I'm worried that God's going to punish me, or I'm actually more worried he's going to punish my children for what I've done. And I've said, if you are a Christian, God will never punish you. Why? Because Isaiah 53 says this, the punishment that was ours went upon Jesus. And for God to punish you for your sins meant that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. And Jesus' blood was sufficient. Jesus' sacrifice was enough. It was a full, complete oblation for the sins of humanity. And Jesus never is going to have to go back to the cross for some sin you commit that he didn't cover. It was all covered at the cross. And so there is no punishment. You know what Jesus came to do? Jesus came to replace religion with himself. Religion says do, do, do. Work, work, work. Make your way up to God. And Jesus came and he stood in the place of religion and he said, you know what? It's not about religion. But he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you want to get to the Father, do you know how you do it? through a relationship with me. And Jesus replaced religion with himself. And so how you're saved is not through religion. I don't care what it is. Whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or Catholicism or Protestantism, can I say to you, if you've been baptized and confirmed, you're not saved necessarily. Unless you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, the finished work on the cross, his resurrection, the full sufficiency of what Christ has done for you, you're not saved. But if you have done that, you can have complete confidence. You know, I can say to you, I know, I know, I know I'm going to heaven. And some people would say, you're arrogant, Craig. How do you know that? And I say, I'm not saying it because of what I do. I'm saying it because of what Jesus has done. 
I am putting my faith and my trust in the full sufficiency of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. It is not about my goodness. It is about his perfection and it is about what he did on my behalf. Lastly, look at what the boy says. We're nearly done. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. The last point says, a hardened heart is resentful. I mean, this is his brother. This is his wee brother. You would think he would be glad to have his wee brother home. He doesn't even call him my brother. Look at what he says. This son of yours. There's something about the hardened heart in religious people that wants to disconnect from other Christians who aren't exactly like them. He won't even call him my brother. He says, this son of yours. And he's resentful. You know, one book I read asked this question. Could it be that, that the younger brother went so far away because he couldn't bear to be around the older brother anymore? He had grown up with a self-righteous, arrogant older brother and he just wanted to get as far away as possible. Because I've discovered that there's people who come into churches over the years and they're desperate and they're broken and they need God, but the first person they meet is an older brother. And they want God, but when they meet the older brother, do you know what you assume? That the older brother's just like the father. And you go a mile away. As Christians, when people see us, we want to represent the Father well. When people see us, we want them to go, if that's what Christians are like, God is for me, not against me. If that's what Christians are like, maybe I don't have to be perfect to go to church. If that's what Christians are like, maybe, just maybe God does love me. There's no joy in this older brother because of his brother coming home. And one of the signs for me of a hardened heart is when my joy at the work of God starts to deplete. When you tell me your family member got saved and I go, that's lovely, but I don't really feel passion and joy. When you tell me someone got healed, when you tell me somebody got set free from something, there should be some, the Bible says there's a party in heaven, that party should be reproduced in us. And when my heart is hard, I stop feeling joy when God is at work around me. Sometimes I look at other Christians who seem over-enthusiastic and I kind of roll my eyes a little bit. You know, why don't you become a little bit more miserable just like me? When I start to find fault in people's lives instead of looking for the good, that's a sign of a hardened heart. When I gossip and focus more about people's past than what God is doing in the present, that's a sign of a hardened heart. Because look at what he says. He says, this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, Where did the prostitutes come into it? There's been no mention of prostitutes anywhere in this. He's making assumptions. That's what a hardened heart does. It always thinks the worst about other people. And even if there were prostitutes, do you know what he's doing? He's casting up something the Father has already forgiven. We have no right, if God has forgiven someone of their past, to bring it up again. And can I say you have no right if God has forgiven you of your past to bring it up again. If God has forgiven you of something you've done in your past, stop bringing it up again. Leave it at the cross. Leave it at the feet of Jesus. The Bible says God chooses to forget. Don't keep reminding them. 
If you've done something, and I, I don't know why there's a weight on this right now. Some of you have things in your life, things you have done in your past, and you keep repenting of them over and over and over again. Can I say to you, repent once, and if it's true repentance, don't talk about it ever again. Leave it at the foot of the cross. The blood of Jesus has covered it. Don't keep digging it up. It's enough if you've repented once. And look at the father's response as we finish. My son. First two words, my son. The son sees himself as a slave and the father reminds him, that is not your identity. You're a son. And I want to say to you today, that your primary identity is not a man or a woman, a husband or a wife, a son or a daughter, a brother or sister. Your primary identity today is that you're a child of God. Above every other label and every other identity that people would put on you, you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is where you find your identity. That is where you find your security. My son, the father, said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is powerful. The father says, first of all, you are always with me. What he's saying to the son is, you have been here with me and yet you've taken my presence for granted. This brother of yours, Look how happy he is to be home. You know, sometimes for people who have grown up in the church, it can be harder. You know, there's something lovely about growing up in a Christian home and being brought through Sunday school. And we, there's something wonderful about that. But sometimes you, you can take the Father for granted. He says, you've always been with me. And even those who have been in the church their whole lives at some stage need to get a revelation for themselves of God's love for them. That you just don't adopt your parents' faith as good as that is that you've been brought up. And I want Elijah to grow up in the faith. But I want him at some stage to to have an encounter with Jesus for himself. Second-hand cars are good. Even second-hand clothes can be okay. Second-hand faith doesn't cut it. We need an encounter with Jesus for ourselves. I remember, I've, some, I've mentioned this before, there was a lady when I was in Lurgan, and I am finishing, a lady called Margaret who was a chaplain. She was a chaplain of a, of a Christian organization. She was a church warden. Everybody assumed she was a Christian and I preached on this passage probably 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And I went to see her the next day and she was ill. And I wanted to pray for her illness. And I said, can I pray for you? And I was about to pray about her, her asthma. And I said, is there anything else I can pray for? And she said, yes. I want to pray that I can receive Jesus as my saviour. And I nearly fell off the seat. Because everybody in Lurgan thought this woman was a Christian woman. But she understood that she had just put her faith in religion. But she had never trusted in Jesus. And her life was radically transformed from that. She had a whole new demeanor. Look at what he says next. He says, everything I have is yours. He says, son, you're complaining about not getting a young goat. The whole farm belongs to you. It's all yours. Can I say to you, God is withholding nothing from you. Nothing good from you. That's what the enemy will try to tell you. Did God really say if you do that, 
God is withholding nothing good from you. Ephesians 1.3 says this, that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, along with his son, freely give us all things? God has withheld nothing good from you. In Christ you have everything. Not because you earn it, nothing because you deserve it, but because of his goodness, his mercy, and his grace. You know, we call this story the prodigal son. Or the lost son. But really both sons were lost, weren't they? One got lost in the pigsty and one got lost in the father's house. One made his way home and found grace and mercy. And one, because of his hardened heart, refused to go into the house. And the greatest danger for most of us in hope, and the greatest danger for most of us watching online, isn't that today you're going to go out and live this wild, drunken, promiscuous life. I mean, there's one or two of you I wouldn't be so sure about. Um, I'll look at the roof. But, um, but that's not the, you know what the greatest danger is? Is that we just think that being good is enough. That we put our trust in our good deeds. That we take the Father for granted. That we don't realize it's not about rule keeping, it's about a relationship. That's always been God's greatest desire. Not that you would be a good little boy or girl, but that you would know Him and that you would love Him and that you would serve Him from a heart that overflows with love.